Well, gentlemen, this morning, Pastor Sandy has traveled this week to India. And so about this time, he will have been teaching Indian pastors pretty much all day. So they've been having amen all day someplace over in India, and uh, all week, actually. And so in his absence, Pastor Sandy has invited one of our pastoral colleagues here at Second, Michael Davis, to come and be our teacher for the day. Michael is a new member to our pastoral team. Uh, he's a graduate of Covenant Seminary, and he's the pastor to young adults here at Second Press, and we are delighted uh, to have him come and be a part of our staff and this morning to open the scriptures to us. So, Michael, come on up, brother. Okay, good morning, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. I've been anticipating this time for... Um, since about August, and uh, I'll tell you the truth, only reason I chose this passage was because of the date. In fact, I only seen dysfunctional family, and I said, well, I have a dysfunctional family. I can relate to that topic, and I don't even need, I can, I can talk about that easily, right? Until I looked at the actual passage. <laughs> After 2 Samuel 26 through 31, we see Tamar's rape, and I said, wow, how did I get that? A guy right out of seminary, <laughs> walking into his first pastoral position, and he's teaching on Tamar's rape. So I hope you guys have been praying for me since August. <laughs> it is good to be here, and it's good to be in a room full of men. Uh, and I think Sandy said this at the beginning. It's just something about talking to men and just diving into scriptures and, and just having God talking, being able to uh, talk about things that we can't talk about in other conversations or small groups or our Sunday school classes. But so I'm glad to be here. As Mike Stokey said, I am uh, new to the pastoral team. I was a pastoral intern in 2013 between downtown church and second prayers. Uh, my wife and I, we have one son. He was born July 1st, 2014. We come from St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and I am a Missouri Tiger. Uh, we are racking and tearing up the, a the SEC, and we're coming for the championship one of these days. <laughs> All right. Um, what I'll be doing is I'll kind of break this up into sections, and we'll read um, the first section, which is 2 Samuel 12, 26 through 31. And um, one of the things before we dive into the actual text is that uh, what we'll see is we see God's grace given to David, um, his unconditional grace. But then we see God promise to David what is to come actually happens to his household. Second Samuel 12, 11, he says, he says, evil will rise up against thee, right? And then we see the evil within his household. David maybe may not have expected that. However, we see that his house is now torn apart. So we'll see evil, we'll see betrayal, and we'll see grief. All promise to David. So let me read uh, the first section first. Now Joab fought against Rabbi and the the, of the Ammonites and took ro the royal city. And Joab sent the messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbi. Uh, moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now, then gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and call it by my name. 
So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of the king from his head. The weight of, the, of, the, of, this, of it was a talent of gold and it was a precious stone. It was placed on David's head and, then, and, he, put, or he, put, and he brought uh, out a spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and, a- and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kindling. And thus he did to all the cities of, Ammon, of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Well, first we see that David, that the author jumps back into the story. And this kind of takes place, we can put this right back uh, at 11, right after chapter 1125. We see the war between the Ammonites and David. And as they step into, as we see the scene that comes next is that is Bathsheba and Uriah being killed. And now he, uh, David is punished and repents. And the narrator jumps us, takes us back to the scene and shows us that the war has been won. So Joab, what does he do? He does what is honorable. He calls for the king to come back and stand in front of the army to take the city. And as he calls for him, he says, listen, call, call the king. Let him know before I, I, I call the city in my own name. He is the, who is Joab? He's the commander in chief of uh, David's army. And so before David comes, we have to realize that this war is beneficial. This war is is something that, that helps him. This war is something that makes him prosperous as a city. Um, I forgot my water. My mouth dries up pretty fast. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, he, he um, and so as he is made prosperous, the first point is God's unconditional grace. God's unconditional grace. Because he didn't deserve to take over the city. Be, why? Because what, God, what he did previously was set a man up to be killed because he had taken his wife. However, God still uh, made David, his anointed one, prosperous at this time through Joab. So Joab asks him to come and take the city. And as he takes the city, what does David do? He takes his rightful place. And he positions himself as the king by taking the crown, which is a talent of gold, which is about 66 pounds. And that's the equivalent. And being 66 pounds, some commentators say that this should have been placed on the head of a a statue instead of a head of an actual human being. And so David puts this crown on his head to mark a time of him being victorious and taking this city. And this city is not just any other city. It's a city that was just lined up right on the uh, Jordan River, uh, connected to a Joabab River, jo- Joabak River. And so what this meant was that this was a prosperous city. They had plenty. It was the capital city, the chief city of the, Ammon- for the, of the Ammonite people. And so David, he benefited. He, he, wa- he, he made something from this. And so when we think about how God is faithful to him, we think in the sense that he, couldn't have, he, sh- he shouldn't have been prosperous. But I think in that same situation of how 
our story and what God has made us and called us to be is that we should not be prosperous. We should not benefit from any of the blessings that God has blessed us with. He sh we should not be standing here or we shouldn't have the privilege to uh, breathe the breath that we're breathing today. Why? Because we're sinners. Because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. However, God has made us prosperous. He has called us to be men of God. He has called us to chase after him and pursue him. And so at the same time, we take our rightful place as what? As children of God. Men of God who stand up in their communities, who stand up in their families and lead. And being able to take that rightful position is to have a life that is devoted to Christ. So unconditional grace being our first, our first point. And now um, we understand that also to, to kind of see that God's amazing grace just reminds us of the, of the hymn that John Newton wrote. And as we sing it, we understand that that sweet grace, that that undeserving grace, that that grace that we so, so take at advantage when we take in our breath or when we breathe or when, we, uh, when, we, when we're able to love and we're able to care for others and not think of our own interests and being obedient to Christ. That is the grace that we, uh, we have. The next point is in Chapter 13, 1 and 22. 1 verses 22. And I'll start reading. Now Aslam, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Abnam, uh, David's son, loved her. And Abnam was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister. For, he, for she was a virgin. And it, it seemed impossible to Abnon to, uh, to do anything to her. And Abnon had a friend whose name was Joabad, and the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Joabnab, Joadab, Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son, king of David, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Abnon said to him. I love Tamar, my brother's um, sister, my brother's my brother Abnam's sister. Jonadab said to him, "Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, "Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare food in my sight, that I may see see it and eat it from her, from her hand." And so Abnam lay down and pretend to be ill. And when the king came to, came to see him, Abnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, and I, that I may eat of her hand. Then David sent to Tamar, saying, go to my brother Abnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Abnon's house, where he, had lied, lay, he was laying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat it. Abnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Abnon said to Tamar, bring food into the chamber 
that I may eat of your, from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she made and brought them into the chamber to Abnon, her brother. But she brought, she brought them near to him to eat. He took hold of her and she to her and, and he said to her, come and lie with my what lie with me, my sister. She answers. She answered him. No, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where I am, where should I where could I carry my shame? As for you. You would be one of the outrageous fools of Israel. Now, therefore, please speak, the, speak, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he did not listen to her. He, and being stronger than she, he violated her and laid with her. And Abnon, Abnon hated her with great hatred, very great hatred, so that the hatred with which hated her was greater than the love that he that which he loved her. And Abnon said to, to her, get up and go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away is for for this is wrong in sending me away greater than the other than that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out from my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing the long robe with sleeves for thus the virgin daughter of the king dressed. So, she, so, he, so his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her ro- uh, the long robe that, that she wore and said to her, said at her hand on, and put her and laid her hand on her head and went away aloud, crying aloud uh, as she went. And her brother Aslam said to her, Has Abnon, your brother, been waiting with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take, his, take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate, a desolate woman in her brother Aslam's house. When King David heard all of the all of these things, he was very angry. But Aslam spoke to Abnon, neither good nor bad, for Abnon hated Abnon. Aslam hated Abnon because he violated his sister. So the next point is evil promised to David. Abnon rapes Tamar. The first thing that we see that in the the beginning of the verse uh, is that. It says now, which is an indication that between the war and between uh, and between this time, David, there, there had to be a length of time. And that length of time may have been him going to back to Jerusalem from this war. But needless to say that going back to 2 Samuel 12, verse 11, that this evil that is rising, that should rise against the house of David is making itself known now. But so David may not be thinking of this or may not have this on his radar. So uh, when Abnon asks ask for Tamar to come, this is not on David's radar. He's, this, is, this is not a suspicious situation. Also, the writer lets us know that Tamar is what? She's beautiful. And then also Abnon loved her. Now, we can question what that love actually meant. Was that love or lust? 
And so when Abnon talk, when Abnon come, I mean, when, yeah, Abnon makes himself ill and he presents himself to David, what he's doing is he's taking this deceitful advice from Jonadab. Jonadab being the nephew of David and a friend or cousin to Abnon. The text also says that it was after, um, it indicates that, Ta- verse 2, going back to verse 2, that Tamar, um, I mean, and Abnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to do anything to her. Again, she was a virgin is another indication uh, that she was prepared for marriage sexually. And so at the time, there was some, Abnon had to wait. So him seeing a beautiful sister, loving her, he had to wait for her to become of age to sexually engage her because she may have been protected for him to do anything to her. And in doing anything to her, we we obviously know that that meant that he wanted to rape her. So him making himself ill and tormented, Jonadab seen this. This had to be physical. This had to be something that Jonadab was his friend knowing that, you know, something has to be wrong with him. What is tormenting him? And he asked and he lets him know, I love my sister. And in loving his sister, he he I don't think Jonadab may have been thinking, you know what? Maybe he wants to lie with his sister or maybe he, wa- he wants to do something. He, he wants to uh, not just lie with his sister, but rape his sister. And so he what does Jonadab do? And he says, as he's described being a very crafty man, how about you pretend to be sick? How about you set a situation up to pretend to be sick so King David can send, have a reason to send Tamar to you? That's exactly what he does. I want us to pay attention to what what the writer lets us know, though. He gives us a hint that this deceitful man or this crafty man was a wise man. So his wisdom may have not been uh, uh, just used for deceit. It could have been used for good things. But so his character in this situation was just to say that he was a wise man, but he but Abnon heeded to make what wise decision, make a wise decision uh, deceitful. So this deceitful advice turned to something that was bad. It turned to something that was disgusting. Who who else was deceived was David. King David was deceived. Again, he didn't suspect anything that uh, that. Abnon would do to his sister. So he sends for Tamar to come. Tamar comes. She prepares a meal for her brother. She sees everyone leave out of the room because Abnon sends everyone out. So he's preparing the scene for us. And the scene and the stage is set for him to make his move. And as he makes his move, he approaches her. And her response is, he says, come lie with me, sister. She says, no, my brother. The purpose of her saying, no, my brother, is for him to see that this is not appropriate. And she goes on to say that in all of Israel, this thing should not be done. This is a disgusting invitation from Abnon. Disgusting invitation. And so what she she says is this is an outrageous thing. And in the Hebrew, it means it's a stupid thing. It's a foolish thing. And she says to him, don't be described by this foolish and disgusting thing. All of this is not done in all of Israel. What do we see that she she gathers this from is Leviticus 18 and 9, 
When Leviticus 18 and 9, it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another's, another's home. So she's saying that this is against the law. How about you approach my father first to see what, see, see, see our father and see if he would give me to you. But Abnon didn't take that advice, nor, did he, nor was he even unmoved by the description of her calling him an outrageous fool or that he would be described as an outrageous fool. But if we also look at it from Tamar's perspective, she says that what does it mean for me? I would have to carry it. I would have to carry this. What is she saying? I would be scarred. I would be marred. This would be something that this violation would cause me to, uh, to live. I would have to live with this for the rest of my life. Again, Amnon doesn't heed to her plea. In fact, he proceeds on and takes her. He violates her. I remember when we first moved to Memphis, a couple things went wrong. First thing is, we, well, before we even moved in our house, um, it was a buddy's, the house is owned by my friend, there was no plumbing. <laughs> so for two weeks, three weeks, when we first moved to Memphis in January 2013, we couldn't use a toilet, we couldn't use a shower, so we had to live with someone else. Uh, so the first thing is, I was like, wow, someone stole all the plumbing, someone stole all the copper. That's fine. Welcome to Memphis. Um, then later on in, in, in November, uh, I, I received a phone call from my wife, and she said, Mike, come home. Someone broke into our house. Now, our time of being married, no one, we had never been robbed. We had never been violated in that sense. And uh, so I couldn't believe it. It was, it was something that it was an outrageous thing. It was something that I felt that whoever did it was foolish. And I was violated. So when I get home, I rush home and I see the door already wide open. And my wife is walking through the house. My friend comes along with me and everything is just all over the place. They just rummaged through the drawers. They stole the TV, <laughs> our wedding gift. Um, gift. And they, they, they stole my, my camera. They, they went through all of my clothes. They seen all of our, our belongings. They, they knew all, they knew where my dirty laundry was. They knew everything about me. I think that in the moment of being violated, I, I, I was so uncomfortable, un uncomfortable and, and, and disarmed that I, I didn't know what to do. And I, I wanted revenge. I wanted, to, I wanted to find the particular person just so I could put my hands around them. Not to hug them, <laughs> but maybe to choke them. But I wanted to do so because I had so much anger, so much frustration. Someone took advantage of me. Brothers, I want to ask you, have you ever felt violated? Violated when it came to a business deal. Violated when you felt like your friend had stabbed you in your back. Violated because someone didn't obey a contractual agreement. Violated because someone tried to take advantage of your child. Violated because... Maybe in previous history, you have been taken advantage of. When we look at sin, it is treacherous. And that's what the Nathan, the prophet, was telling David. That the Lord was saying to David, that when evil rises against you, it's out of your own sin, David. 
Yes, I'll be gracious to you. But your house will suffer. So Tamar suffered. And in suffering this violation, she had to live with it. She was, she was detested, given a cold shoulder, and devastated. When we define sin and we look at sin, we have to look at it in all of its details and all of its parts. And I think that uh, uh, Cornelius Plantinga gives a good definition of this in his book, A Brevity of uh, Sin. He says, sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. He, he also says God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively, substantively, because it violates shalom. Because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. When we go back to Genesis 3, we understand that sin made, put its ugly head up. And what God originally made for peace and harmony in the garden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve and caused nothing but chaos. And so right after sin, we see a promise in Genesis 3, 15, but then also in, G in Genesis 4, we see the first murder. Sin ran, made its, raised its ugly head and ran rampant on God's earth. What did it do? It perverted what God originally intended to be, which was holy, which was pure, which was peaceful. And that, when sin enters, just like when, you, when I walked into my house, things were just all over the place, in shambles. When we sin, we can feel like that. Our lives can feel like that. We can feel like there's one thing after another, and I just feel, and sometimes you just want to wallow in your own self-pity. But I want to remind you, and every time you listen to the assurance of pardon and you hear God's grace and you hear his forgiveness, you hear his redeeming love, you take hold of that. No, no longer wallowing in your own self-pity. No longer holding on to the things that so easily beset you. But as the Hebrew writer said, you fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And so, yes, sin causes disruption. Sin causes problems, and we see this. How are we to lead our, house, our household when, when, when we fall into sin? How are we to be leaders amongst our community when we fall into sin? Brothers, I want to tell you, take a page out of what David did and repent. Repent. We have that privilege. We have that opportunity. The things that you feel like no one else can forgive you, God can forgive you. He is a forgiving love and loving God. And when we go before the throne of grace and we seek his forgiveness, we walk in that. It also applies in a sense to how we forgive others. We serve a forgiving God. Therefore, we must, serve, we must forgive others. So sin can plague us. Sin is plaguing them right now. Sin is evil, is promised to David. Sin is running rampant in his household. How does this affect Tamar? Again, she was detested. She was given a cold shoulder by Aslan and devastated. We see this in verses 15 through 20. 
And when she was given that cold shoulder by Aslam, what does he say? And before, he, before she even gets to Aslam, she rips, her, she rips her garments and she puts the ashes on her head because she walks away in so much despair and so much devastation. She doesn't know how to handle herself because the very thing that she felt as if was precious to her was taken away. It was violated. It wasn't violated by a stranger, by the very person that she loved. I mean, by, the, by her own relative, the person that was supposed to love her. She was supposed to be able to trust him. But Aslam, on the other hand, he says, don't worry. Just put this aside. Now, I want to pick, pick up something that I think that in the story and in Abnon and Aslam's mind is this, is that Amnon is the next in line for the throne. Aslam in, I believe, uh, Samuel 3 and 2 is described as a beautiful man, all right? uh, as a handsome man. And being described as a handsome man, Abnon knew that his brother and sister had a little bit more favor with David than, they, than he did. And so this could possi possibly have been something to humiliate Tamar and Aslam. Aslam may have had that in the back of his mind. And so what does he say? You know what? Don't worry about it. As if he may take care of it. As if he may uh, eventually seek revenge. Or this could be a cold shoulder. Not really sympathizing with her. He inquires, did your brother lie with you? But he doesn't comfort her. And this makes David very angry, we see. And so what, do we, what, do, what, 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 is, what does this mean for her, her dignity? was taken away, not only by her brother, but she, was also, she couldn't even find anywhere to find comfort. Yes, she was a desolate woman and in the house of Aslan, but that was only because her destiny or her dignity had been taken away. Dan Allender calls this marred dignity. To mar, mar dignity is to put a mark on a painting that ruins it without entirely erasing its presence. Marred dignity. She had nothing to stand on. And so that having been taken away, now we move, we move from that scene to the next scene. And we see that this hatred not only was, to, um, was, was just a hate, but it was a hate that was greater than the love that Abnon had for his sister. And hate greater than the love that Adnan had for his sister. That is a hate. I don't, I don't even know. I, I don't even know. I, I didn't even hate the people that came into my house that much. My wife may have, but I didn't. I think what's disarming about this is when we look at the story and how the narrator sets it up, is he says that a man was tormented because he loved her. So if we're just reading this, we're saying a man loved her so much that he was, he was sick. It sounds romantic, but at the same, but, but, but when you continue on in the story, it wasn't that he loved her. He lusted after her, and he lusted after the throne. So what did he do? He took advantage of someone else. He, took, he, he used his own desires. He fulfilled his own desires at the advantage of his sister. I think that challenges us. It challenges us in the sense that no, we, 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 we haven't, um, it's not that we, we take advantage of people all the time, but it challenges us in a sense to say, man, dive into your life. What areas have someone taken advantage, has someone taken advantage of you? 
And what has been your response? Do you feel as if you have no dignity and do you walk in that? Do you feel like because someone did me wrong that everything that I do is to prove them wrong, is to detest them? Do I achieve because I want to go against what has happened to me? We, we shouldn't live our lives out of the fact of what, what has happened to us in terms of sin, but we live it in terms of being redeemed people of God, looking forward in eternally as an eternally changed heart with hope for the everlasting kingdom, looking to pursue things that are holy. As Matthew 6 and 33 says, to pursue after righteous, the righteousness of uh, 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 the kingdom of God, seeking his kingdom first. That's what it should cause us to do. As the story continues on, so that hatred was greater than that love. A desire, also Dan Anderson says this, a desire, desires not surrender to God will always cause us or lead us to murder or lust. I think this is important because the other, the, on the other end of it, our own desires of our heart can cause us to overlook the next person, can cause us to push the other, the other person aside. But if we were to look at it in the Philippians 2 kind of way, it, it is we ought to look for or in the interests of others. Why? Because we ought to do it as Christ had done it, in humility and love. He looked, for our, looked towards our own interests. Aslam didn't look into his sister's own interests. Abnon didn't look for his sister's own interests. King David didn't even look for his daughter's own interests. Everyone had their personal agenda. In fact, David could have been thinking, well, I've seen something coming. May have not been this drastic, but I, I knew that this was going to come against my household. So war has been raged in the, in the house of David. And war being raised in the house of David, we see that uh, uh, the next point that betrayal is promised to David. Betrayal being promised to David. How is betrayal promised to David? Well, we'll see in verses 23 through 27. After two, two four years, Aslam had sheep shears at Belhazar, which is near Ephraim. And Aslam invited all the king's son. And Aslam came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep seers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Aslam, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but uh, but he pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Aslam said, if not, let my brother Abnon go with us. Then and uh, let Abnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? And as and but Aslam pressed him until he he let Abnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Aslam commanded his servant, his servants, Mark. When Abnon's heart is, is merry with wine, and when, all, when I say to you, strike Abnon, then kill him, do not fear. Have I not command, commanded you? 
Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Aslam did to Abnon as Aslam had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Uh, What we see is Aslam betrays his brother. He seeks revenge, a clever scheme, and as he does this, what does he do? First of all, he waits two years. So he had to be stewing, stewing, stewing over this. And this plan had to be in his mind. Remember, he was going after the throne just as much as Abnon was going after the throne. And this stewing in his mind, what does he do? He says, well, let me set up a sheep sears festival. This was the festival when all of you invite friends and you, uh, you eat and you drink and you be merry and you do all of the fun things, right? And so this is what he felt as if he would invite his father. King David refused. Hey, son, I'm too busy. I'm the king, <clears throat> but you have my blessing. But this was only a, dis- a, a, a disguise. This, disguise. This was a mirage in order to actually get Abnon. And what does he say? Well, let Abnon go. And he said, why do you want your brother to go? And he pressed him. Please let him to go. Maybe. Whatever he did to press him and convince him, this was deception. This was clever. And as he did, when he did, when he did allow his brother to go, what does he do? He sets him up. He asks his servants to watch the moment that he is merry and filled with drink. And so this is a pivotal move to the throne in which we ought to see that Aslam had so much hatred that he could kill his brother. The story is set up pretty, pretty, pretty good. Abnon loved his sister, lusted after his sister, but yet he had so much hatred that he told her to get up and go. And he had her escorted out. I mean, hate is all over the house of David. When we, when we look at this, we have to say, why, did, why is it that hate is all over the house of David? Why are their hearts turned to one another? We obviously, we know it's promised to them, but we also know that in their own hearts, they have the cruel intentions. They have the wrong mentality. They are, do, they are going about it the wrong way. To, could you imagine setting your brother or sister up, even your best friend, to kill him, to betray him? But yet at the beginning of this, I want us to, One thing I wanted wanted us to keep in mind is that God is faithful to his promises. Whether that is in disciplining us or giving us grace, God is faithful to his promises. And this is what we're seeing played out in in, uh, David's household. So Aslam, he he asked for them to, uh, to go after Abnon and kill him. So he does so. And when he does, we see that um, this leads to David's grief. Look at 30 through uh, 39. While, while they were away, news came to David, and Aslam struck down all the kings, and not one of them was left. One of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay, and lay on the earth, <clears throat> lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by 
tore, his, tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, let not my Lord, uh, let not my Lord suppose that, that they killed all the young men. The king's sons of Abnon alone is dead. For by the command of Aslam, this, is, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Jonah, Jonadab enters back into the story. And Jonadab, being the crafty, very crafty man, the character there is wise. He uses his wisdom here uh, because he wasn't even there. He uses his wisdom here. He, he knew. He had a hunch. He's like, you know what? He didn't kill everyone. In fact, they're on their way back. But he, but he did kill Abnon. And not only did he kill Abnon, he had this plan since the violation of his sister. What did this do to David? First, David grieved so hard that he tore his garments and he lay down on the ground. And only th- what, could, what could possibly, possibly be going through David's mind? My God, this has all happened because of me. One commentator said that our, the greatest gift to our people, the greatest gift to people to us is our personal holiness. The greatest gift to people to us, people around us, is our personal holiness. Why is our personal holiness important? Because sin corrupts. Sin eats up what everything around us. It causes problems. It disrupts. It is murderous. And we see it. And David is experiencing it. And he's grieving. Uh, verse 33. Now, therefore, let not my lord, the king, the king so take heart, take to heart as it's supposed to be, uh, as that, as suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Abner alone is dead. So what does Aslam do? As, but Aslam fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted his eyes and looked up, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come as your servant said. So it has come about. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. So we see David grieves over the death of Abnon. David grieves with his sons. And David grieves the absence of Aslan. How much has David lost? He's lost a lot. And some of us may know what grief may look like in our lives. We, we, can, we, we may have grieved loss of relationships, grieved the death of loved ones, grieved the loss of financial need, uh, grieved the loss of a job. We, there are various ways we can grieve. Even if our own children go abandon and, and do their own things and they don't want to listen to what we have to say, we grieve. David is grieving like never before. And again, why? Because he knows his prayer. Because what he set up. Who did he kill? Uriah. Who did he violate? Bathsheba. Who was violated in his household? Tamar. 
who was killed in his household, Abnon. The story is lining up very well to what David's actions have previously done, what David has previously done to what we see in the story now. And so what does he lose? His son. His son flees, and he goes to his grandparents' home, and he leaves there. So when we, look, when we look at what David has been promised, God has fulfilled every part of what David has promised, and there is more to come. But what do we go back to? We go back to the point that God is gracious unconditionally. Why? Because David should have been the one that was violated. He should be the one that was dead. But yet, God had grace on him. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a sweet sound? It would, be, it would be bad to end it with the fact that he's lost everything. But to know that God is still gracious because he's alive is important. So when we walk out of here this morning, it's not to hear that we have so much sin in our lives. We have so much trouble in our lives. But when we walk out this morning, we hold God's hand, knowing that he is a gracious and loving father. So much so that in Genesis 3.15, he had a historical redemptive plan just for each of us. That's what we rest in. And that's what we find assurance in. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you. We thank you for your mercy and grace and how good you have been to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our redeemer. We thank you that you are a sustainer, that you are the one that loves us. God, in so many ways, we're flawed. In so many ways, we go wrong and we go the opposite way, Lord. In fact, in Romans 7, Paul says he does the things that he, he doesn't want to do. And Lord, you being so gracious, you still deliver us from the things that we don't want to do. You deliver us from the sins of our hearts. And God, I bless you and I thank you for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.